You're listening to Messy Jesus Business, a podcast about radical gospel living. Hi, everyone. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, a writer, spiritual director, and jail minister living in Chicago. Welcome to The Mess. At Messy Jesus Business, we explore how the mess of radical gospel living brings disciples into a life of struggle as we advocate for social justice, live simply, serve others, practice contemplation, and live in community. Hey everyone, I'm Cherish Badzinski. I work behind the scenes for Messy Jesus Business Podcast, primarily as a writer and sound editor. And I would like to invite you to help us celebrate an upcoming milestone, our 50th episode. I know Messy Jesus Business Podcast means a lot to many of you. Now here's your chance to let us know what you love most, to share how Messy Jesus Business has inspired and influenced you. Here's how. Simply record yourself telling us about your favorite episode, something you've learned that changed your perspective, or what the program means to you. Really, anything about Messy Jesus Business Podcast that matters to you is just fine. Then email your voice audio recording to us at MessyJesusBusiness at gmail.com. You just might hear yourself on an upcoming episode. That's MessyJesusBusiness at gmail.com. We can't wait to hear from you. Now, on to our guest. Anayelsi Velasco Sanchez, she, her, hers, is an Indio-Latinx mujerista offering education, coaching, consulting, writing, and art all intended to assist people in building an interlocking framework for justice. She is the founder of En Conjunto, a collective of people of color working independently at the intersection of justice and spirituality. She is also the co-creator of the Digital Dine-In Project, a virtual dining and learning experience bringing people together from around the world. She is an independent practitioner, but partners as a co-coordinator with Liberation School South and serves on the boards of the Festival Center and Many Languages, One Voice in Washington, D.C. In this episode of Messy Jesus Business, Anna Yelsey and I discuss how she found her way to Christianity and justice work. We talk about creativity and social change and how they can inspire conversations and movements and how art can be therapeutic. And we get into the mess of decolonization, how it requires community and intentionality. Finally, we discuss the importance of establishing radically welcoming spaces, particularly for those who feel like outsiders. Enjoy! Hey there, Messy Jesus Business listeners. This is Sister Julia, and I just want to make a little comment before we begin this 
episode about Thanksgiving and colonization. So as you're probably well aware, in the United States, we celebrate Thanksgiving as a national holiday, and it's connected back to the myth of a peaceful colonization where in the pilgrims feasted with the Native Americans and the history of that story, well, it probably didn't go that way. Let's listen to the Native Americans and let them tell their side of the story and how it was an occupation of land and a genocide. Although we can celebrate harvest and we can celebrate gratitude, and this is appropriate for Christians to do, I want to put some context around the conversation in this episode that is partly about decolonizing Christianity. This is some real messy Jesus business indeed. Okay, it's serious stuff to change our world and to build up the kingdom, the reign of God that Jesus proclaimed and commissioned us to do. So all people's dignity is honored, so everyone knows the peace and justice that Christ established. Yes, that's big, messy work. However, part of this work must be joyful and we gotta celebrate. And with that, I wanna say thank you to all of you Thanks so much for listening, for sharing, for participating in the conversations about messy, radical gospel living. You are what make this program great. And I can't wait for more of your comments and your participation on our Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. God bless you all. Peace. Anna Jelsey, welcome to Messy Jesus Business. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here. And I want to jump right into your story. Now, I know you have a history of working in nonprofits and various justice movements and serving as a consultant and on board of directors. And you are diversity, equity, and inclusion certified, yet you call yourself an anti-racism, anti-oppression, and decolonization educator. Yes. So I'm wondering what that means and how you be, it became clear to you that this was how God wants you to serve. I always try and choose my words really carefully when I say I'm, I'm not a DEI educator because it's not that I have a, I don't have an abundance of respect for my peers who, who do identify that way. It's just that my approach and the things that I try and incorporate into it and the posture I take when I do this work, I have found looks uh sometimes radically different than, than the average DEI educator. And I find like it's very important at the, at the forefront to let communities that I'm going to partner with know that I'm not really coming in with what is often somewhat of a prepackaged like intro to the conversation level kind of thing, the way that sort of corporate DEI package, <laughs> which unfortunately we have found in, in recent years, like it, its ability, that package's ability to actually create some lasting change and, and really uh, transform the way in which people act and engage one another or think and engage one another uh, isn't as effective as we might hope. And I, I honestly believe that the approach I'm taking fills in some of the gaps that we're seeing in a traditional DEI approach. So that kind of is why I'm not DEI, but what I am, <laughs> what I mean by anti-racism, anti-oppression, decolonization, um, and interlocking justice is I... One, I'm, I am absolutely concerned with relationship and how people feel about one another and where their hearts and minds are in things. I don't believe that the work that I'm trying to do, this work of anti-racism, this work of, of bringing a more equitable society about is one that can be done just by focusing on relationships. And a lot of times your average DEI education is, 
you know, don't say this, do say that, don't think this way. How are your, your person to person relationships? Important questions. But to be frank, like those things aren't going to be impactful enough if the systems in which people are engaging one another are inherently corrupt or harmful or have become so corrupt and harmful that they need to be something new needs to be built in their place. So there needs to be reform or dismantling. And so the work I do is saying we need to focus on systems just as much as we're focusing on relationships, which is already not the average DEI approach. (laughs) Then I have a background um, and partnership with communities where we have a heavy focus on healing justice and holistic approaches to doing this work. And so I'm very concerned with people's internal wellness, spiritually, physically, emotionally, mentally, as they're in relationship with one another, as they're pursuing justice work, the phrase that I say, I'm probably becoming very monotonous to people who work with me regularly is it doesn't just matter what we do. It matters how we go about it. And so a lot of my conversations are about that. Yes, we want to accomplish this thing, but who, who are we in that process? And what's the impact that that's having on people? Yeah. So how did it become clear to you that this was the way God wanted you to show up to this work? So I have had, I became a Christian in college through my college ministry, um, Methodist student ministry. And I very, very quick um, early childhood background. I grew up in the foster care system. I saw a lot of harm and abuse and unhealthy environments in my childhood. And I aged out of the system when I was 17, went off to college, was completely alone and met some folks in this student ministry. I had no interest in becoming a Christian. It was not what I was looking for, but the safe place to land that they offered me, I never looked back. I kept I more deeply and deeply invested in this community, even when I wasn't necessarily pursuing Jesus himself or pursuing Christianity. And it just sort of was this natural growth out of that. So I'm grateful for that, to that community for that. That being said, its representation of Christianity was very conservative, sometimes to the degree of, of fundamentalist. And there were things that just did not align with like what felt like truths to me about the world <laughs> and how we were supposed to care for one another. And so that's a really long answer to say um, I moved from that space into adulthood, into jobs that had a very similar environment. And I kept coming up against these walls that said, we want justice, we want equity, we want to do what's right up until a point, only for up into like this many people, these types of people. Uh, And so it just sort of was a natural progression for me, for my faith and my work that I start pursuing spaces that want to be more radical about their approach. Mm, Yeah, yeah. When you say that people were excluded or they only wanted to sort of offer compassion and include certain folks. Can we just name, name the truth? Like sure. who were they excluding? Oh, absolutely. Well, for one, as a, as an immigrant and a woman of color and someone from a lower income background coming into a space that was definitely middle-class to upper middle-class, almost entirely white, the theology that was being taught was not a theology where I could see myself reflected really at all. And so I was sort of parroting things that made no sense for myself as a woman of color (laughs) that I really had to sort of deconstruct and and then reconstruct something new in its place. So there was that outside of myself, because I, yes, I'm all of those things, but I'm also a straight woman. I'm a cisgender woman. For LGBTQ plus folks, it was very much a love love the um, sinner, hate the sin mentality, which was not the truly welcoming, certainly not radically affirming or loving. And that just didn't work for me. I mean, I literally, I lost jobs over it. So, Yeah. Yeah. So along the way, you figured out that this was, your passion was in creating spaces that were radically inclusive yeah. that truly reflected 
the beloved community that Jesus established in his lifetime that had all types of people, no matter who they were were at the table. Yeah. And you use the word radical. So what does radical mean to you? You know, here at Messy Jesus Business, we're really interested and we we chew on radical gospel living, but we Mm -hmm. don't actually break open the word radical very much. So what do you mean by that? And I know it means a lot of different things to different people. Um, I think for some people, they hear radical and what they hear is militant. And, you know, there are probably some people who would be like, oh, Anna Jelsea, yeah, she's militant. I don't think that that's the, I don't, like the healthier I get emotionally and mentally and the ability to see myself in my fullness. I'm like, no, that's not true. I'm very loving. I'm warm. I want healing and wellness for people. I'm not about the cause, you know, at the expense of, of, of people, but I'm very frequently make others uncomfortable in my firm, like the firm stance I take in what it is to be inclusive, even at my, at the risk of my own comfort. So there are things that I'm not necessarily sure I understand or even maybe even agree with if that's the right language, Mm -hmm. but it's for me, they're not, they're not breaking points of like, I can't be in community with you. I can't be in relationship with you, or you don't have a full right and, and need for like the love of Jesus, for the love of the church, for the love of your community and of, and of your family. And I think for, for others, there's a line that's drawn there. And so radical for me is like, when I say everyone belongs, everyone belongs. Mm-hmm. Like, Yeah. Yeah. So we're trying not to imagine it according to our own comfort zones or what feels good or like, this is the image of inclusion I have. Let me create that image. But it's all about kind of like stretching the boundaries and allowing ourselves to enter into those places of discomfort and disturbance. You know, I'm hearing sort uh, of like, if people are labeling you this way and, and you're like, no, 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 that's not who I am. Perhaps what they're responding to is the way that you in your warmth can also be so provocative and prophetic. I think I have experienced you that way, you know, in our previous time together. Mm -hmm. And for me, that feels like the way that the Holy Spirit really works, right? God is one who comes in and like, was like, you thought that was it? You were settling down? Let me mess that up a little bit. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's even in the way, you know, the way we understand inclusion. I think for a lot of us, for the church, we, even in the, in the churches that we call, you know, multicultural or churches we say are multi-ethnic, multiracial, the reality is for a lot of those spaces, at best, there may be multiracial. They maybe have a few folks of color that are in their space, but for those folks and for folks of other identities that are pushed to the margin, it often is like, you're in our space, we'll love you well, but you have to adhere to a very clear set of rules. You have to present in a very specific way. You can be queer, but don't be offensive in your identity. Like, don't be too present to all with all of who you are. You can be a woman of color, but don't celebrate it too loudly <laughs> or too unapologetically. That's not really inclusion. There's not, the, there's not really radical love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So how do we as Christians offer unconditional love and acceptance to one another in the way that Jesus does to us? Yeah. I recently preached at a church and my talk was called Divisive Like Jesus, which I knew was a title. People were like, oh God, what does that mean? Um, But my point was there's so much that Jesus did in action, not even words. It wasn't like, oh, here's a sermon on how to be and not to be, but in action that just spoke to being, to saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, doing the wrong thing at the wrong time, being with the wrong people and doing it so unapologetically, just like flying in the face of of what is supposed to be 
you know, proper and unifying and right. And, and Jesus constantly was transgressing that. And so if that's what divisive is, and if the, if behaving in that same way and modeling that behavior is going to be labeled divisive, then I want to be divisive like Jesus. Wow. Wow. That is uncomfortable to me. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. You know? And I, cause I just think there's, and I don't know if this, honestly, I'm like, no, oh, is this my whiteness? Like I want unity and I want peace <laughs> mm-hmm. and like, like let's create some harmony here. I don't know. Is that, is that part of how I've been indoctrinated to protect white supremacy? I'm not sure, but, yeah. but I, I do know, however, that in the gospel of John, it talks about oneness so mm-hmm. much. Right. And so Jesus came to make us all one. So how do you connect the, the divisive nature of Jesus? I mean, which is true. Like, I mean, that's, they killed him for that with the fact that the gospels are also inviting us to oneness. I think what I don't want folks to hear is division is an end goal or divisive is divisive for divisive, divisive sake is a goal. That's not what that is. It's a a season, and it might be a very long season, depending on resistance. The end goal is oneness. The end goal is true unity and true, truly being able to be present to one another in our fullness. The reality is a lot of the things and places and postures that we label as good and whole and and people in unity have a lot of folks in those communities that have been silenced, that have been pushed out, that are having to pretend to be, you know, more or less than who they really are in order to not shake like the very, the very unsteady, false impression of unity. And so, yeah, it's going to be a longer process and the boat's going to get rocked a little bit more often than expected. I, but the goal is that at the end of that, we are actually able to be fully present to one another. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's uh, the reign of God, the kingdom of God that Jesus came to build and, you know, commissioned us to establish here on earth, right? Heaven on earth. That's what we're creating here as we're working for justice. Like that's what we're moving towards. Okay. But along the way, if I'm getting you, it's like, it's going to be messy. It's going to be complicated. Like as we stand up and are like, no, that is not okay. You cannot Mm -hmm. say that racist language or you cannot whatever oppress, oppress the marginalized. Like as we're making these, these statements and, and using the powers that Christ has given us for good, we're going to be upsetting the status quo. It's sort of inevitable that people are offended and people yeah. are going to turn away because they're uncomfortable. Yeah. The thing that I've tried to, and I'm sure I've messed up like a fair, a fair amount along the way, but the thing that I have tried to, to do to, to measure whether or not I'm doing this well, or, or if I'm truly live like leaning into being Christ-like is one something even in his divisiveness that you see with Jesus is that there isn't a wholesale rejection of anybody that isn't ready to, to be what Jesus or who Jesus is asking them to be. So you, you can be, you know, these leaders or these teachers or, or these members of a faith community who are resisting what would be seen as this, the radical love that I'm trying, as I'm trying to define it. And you could, there's still ways to be possibly in relationship with one another. And that's not me saying that those who are harmed have to be in relationship with those that harm them. Very important caveat. But 
I have people who, when they first meet me, they're like, I couldn't stand you, or that made me very uncomfortable, or I wasn't sure I was going to come back for day two because you said this thing. I always invite them back. And I'm like, if you want to stay in conversation with me, I will stay in conversation with you. But it doesn't mean I'm going to pretend to represent things that I don't represent or believe things that I don't believe. And I'm going to challenge you in the midst of that relationship. But those who have stayed, I've built some incredible friendships with people that in the beginning were like, no, you made me very uncomfortable. You were divisive. (laughs) So there's a difference between that and just rejecting folks. Right. Right. So even though we're bold and prophetic and division like could be the outcome, Mm -hmm. we actually are there to companion people, to meet them where they are, to remain in relationship, to continue to offer them mercy and love and compassion. Absolutely. You know, I, I've always been very like, I'm in this torn place. I'm like, I hope that what I say is useful and, and maybe is prophetic. And then also calling yourself prophetic feels very like uh, right, right. <laughs> ascribing that kind of language to yourself. But I hope that I am leaning into that gifting because it is some, that's something that's been named for me over the years. That's not useful if you're shouting it into a desert and absolutely nobody is listening because you're so <laughs> off-putting um, right. um, and you're so uncaring and so cold that it's like, I don't really care what your message is. So I don't, I'm not shouting into a desert as best as I can see. I'm in community with people, even when we're not on the same page yet. So I hope I'm going about it the right way. Mm, Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of what you're saying fits with what I've heard you teach about interlocking justice, Mm -hmm. which I know people can go on your website, Brown Eyed Amazon, and you have resources and right there for them to learn about it. And it's beautiful and complex and important. Mm -hmm. Yet, could you just break down a bit of like and offer a brief explanation, introduction of what that means sure, sure. and how that fits with what we're describing here? Sure. So interlocking justice is a framework that I've been developing for the last few years. And it honestly was started out as a response to the harm that I was seeing in spaces that identified themselves as justice seeking and as healing spaces. And yet it still persisted in a lot of like toxic behavior, a lot of uh, recreating bad standards and norms that they started out wanting to to break down and dismantle and create something better. But because we're flawed people, we're hurt people, we're traumatized people uh, without a really great deal of intentionality, we tend to do the same painful things to one another. As often as I am in Christian spaces, sometimes very conservative Christian spaces, I'm also in very progressive, liberal, radical, whatever language you want to use spaces. And I see a lot of the same harm created in both spaces and a lot of the same postures being taken. And so interlocking justice was a way to say that there are five areas within doing this work or five postures to take. And it starts with the internal, the, that the re- acknowledgement that all parts of ourselves are connected, that they're interlocked. So our wellness matters. I mentioned earlier, like who we are and how we do the work and how well we are in the midst of it. It matters. It's not an afterthought. <laughs> Self-care and community care are not supposed to be afterthoughts. If we have time, and can get to them. That's how people die, spiritually and physically die in doing this work. So there's that. And then saying that there needs to be consistency and an acknowledgement that all movements are interlocked and connected. Those who are pursuing equity in one area are impacting and impacted by other areas that um, all communities are connected in some form or another. There is no silo. There is no doing this work completely isolated without any impact on one another. 
And we have to acknowledge that and take a new way about approaching things. It doesn't mean you need to care about everything all the time to the same degree. That's not humanly possible, but we need to figure out a way to, to realize that these things are very connected and our approach matters, acknowledging that matters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, one of the, my biggest takeaways from when I heard you present about it was about the importance of like being restorative and, and kind of constantly checking in with yourself. Like, am I doing this for the right reasons? And am I maintaining my health and my stability? Like, is this, is what, what I'm creating here sustainable and good for the whole and good for the individual? So how do you invite people to that sort of transformation, which can be quite, it it really can be stretching for folks who are used to this mentality of like, I got to give, 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 and, and like, serve, serve, serve. Cause that's right. what I was created to do. Right. And we how celebrate do we celebrate burnout? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I mean, I've just come to know so many people who have left movements or who have mm-hmm. left um, justice work or just were like, Oh, I'm done living in community now because that was yeah. just a phase. And there's no way that's sustainable for my spirit, my well being. Yeah. Wait a minute. <laughs> like, yeah. like this is who you were created to be. How can right. we invite you to this for the long haul in a way that's healthy and restorative? Yeah. You probably remember from, from our time together, there was one word that I kept, people would ask a question and I'd be like, my answer repeatedly started out with, well, communication. <laughs> right. I just kept saying over and over again, communication, communication, um, which sounds, can maybe sound trite or like, like a too compact of an answer. But what I mean is we have a tendency to avoid conversations until they absolutely have to ha- have to happen. And I'm saying that as somebody with some pretty severe anxiety. So avoiding conversations is like my go-to sometimes. <laughs> I have to work really hard to counter that. We, d- we don't start out from a place of these are my boundaries, these are my needs. And an acknowledgement that both of those things are fluid and regularly shifting and moving. And so conversations need to be revisited. And so the way in which I've seen this applied in communities and even applied in my own life where it's the most effective is when we keep coming back to that, do we need to have a conversation? Do we need to have a talk? Can we lay these things out together? And often before it becomes a problem, before like before it becomes this insurmountable, we need to walk away. This relationship is broken and fractured beyond repair, uh, which is often where the conversation starts. Like, oh, this is so bad. It's going to implode. Maybe we should have a talk. And so like I have last night, I have an example of kind of having these very honest conversations. I, you know, I work for lack of a better term, freelance. Like I do this work independent of an organization. And it means that that sometimes it's a very hard, like uphill road when it comes to taking care of myself and my family and finances, because I want to do it in a way that's um, equitable in a way that people can access it. And it's not, it's not so that are priced out or unable to, to be a part of these conversations, but finding that balance between that and actually taking care of myself can be very, very hard. I had a conversation with a friend last night where it was one of these, like, let's just do honest communication. This is what I charge for this. This is what I charge for this. This is why this is where it starts to feel like it's maybe predatory or unjust to me. How do I get to a balance? And we just talked it back and forth through. You don't normally have those conversations, especially in justice spaces, because like, just do it, burn out, go on food stamps, live on a couch. I literally have done all those things working Mm. for nonprofits Mm. um, because that's what it is to, to believe in the cause and to really be about it. And like, well, that's how literally how people lose their homes and their livelihood. Um, we have to have honest conversations. And so it's just constant communication about the little things and the big things. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It feels so obvious. (laughs) Yeah. I say it. I'm like, it's not really an amazing, like, it's not a particularly like wise idea. It's just uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah. 
but also like it's so basic it's so relational like it, it fits with what jesus modeled for us right mm-hmm. and and how he was yeah he was in conversation with people all the time and yeah. and at the same time he would like be taking care of himself okay i'm gonna pull away now yeah. and i'm gonna go and have my time with prayer and and the desert and you know and just and Jesus like, was real he, clear about boundaries right real <laughs> yes. clear about boundaries yeah. and and just like so authentically showing up as like this is who I am and this is what mm-hmm. I'm here to do you're still not getting it but I'm yep. still gonna like I'm still gonna tell you over yep. and over and over yeah Absolutely. I agree <laughs> <laughs> Heartedly and living in community. Just the other day, uh, someone I live with was asking me, like, I'm still trying to figure out what sort of things to bring to the house meeting. And I was mm-hmm. like, everything, yeah, everything belongs to the house meeting. If it impacts anybody in this house, we got to talk about it. Yes. And communication is only going to help us be healthier and happier and holier. So let's yep. go. <laughs> yep. Yep. But it's hard because we're also, particularly in a Western context, and to be quite frank, in a Western, like, um, white context, mm. I have, because these are the communities where this, this approach sometimes is the most difficult to implement, um, where it's a, met with the most like apprehension, mm-hmm. because there's a socialization that happens in those contexts of, you know, don't, don't make people uncomfortable. Don't say the inappropriate thing. Don't have the taboo conversations and all of those things need to have, like do it. <laughs> they need yeah. to happen. Um, but yeah. we're literally taught not to do it. Yeah. And we yeah. can do it with love and we can Absolutely. do it with humor and we can do it with like, in a ways that, that don't, um, you know, aren't so rigid or like cold or yeah. something so or judgmental. And it's just like, Hey, this is what I'm noticing. What's going on there. Da, 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 da. Yeah. What can I do uh, to yeah. support you in this? How can we lean on each other? And to really just like be casual about these sorts of things, I think yeah. makes it more digestible for folks who are like, Oh, I'm not used to this. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. yeah. Cause a lot of times yeah. folks will come, they'll, they'll respond to the, me starting this kind of conversation. They'd be like, okay, well, what are my 10 steps? Or like, what oh is the, what does the process look like? And I'm like, well, here's some stuff to guide you here mm-hmm. are principles, you know, here's when, you know, when you're transgressing some of those things and when you're not, but it's not, there's not a easily digested, like set of, you know, ten, paint by numbers sort of approach where, you know, you've comp- accomplished this and done it the way it's supposed to. It's just constant communication. Uh, and a lot of honesty of like, this is what, this feels like harm to me. This feels like care to me, this, you know, and, and just going back and back. Do you, are those things happening? Do you have, do you feel harmed? Do you feel cared for? Do you feel like you've have spaces to, to be restored and to, and to rest and, and do what is my role in, the, in helping you have those things? And am I fulfilling it the way I committed to doing it? Yeah. Oh, that sounds so, um, ideal and so hard to do (laughs) very hard. Yeah. I don't want to oversimplify it. It is not easy approach. Right. No, but I, thank you for breaking it down. I mean, Mm -hmm. really, cause, cause it is really helpful. Yeah. To have just some like, oh yeah, this is the, this is what we're working toward here. Um, now change the topic a little bit. So one of the things I happen to know that both you and I have in common is creativity and how it connects to, uh, movements for for change. So I'm interested in art and how it feeds your spirit, how it's part mm. of this restorative practice, and what you've discovered about how creativity and social change go together. 
Sure. So I'm a painter. That's my, my creative outlet. Um, I do a lot of um, abstract expressionism. This t- tends to be where I land in, in acrylic um, painting. And I started painting when I was in college, when I was in that college ministry I mentioned. And I was not someone who identified as an artist. I definitely wasn't a painter. If I saw some of my paintings that I did back then, I think I would be horrified in terms of skill level. (laughs) Um, But I was asked to co-lead an arts ministry that my friend was was launching for our campus ministry. And I owe him a, a great deal in terms of just getting me comfortable with pick up the paintbrush, create something. It doesn't really matter. He was an artist, very gifted artist. He wasn't out at the time, but he's since come out and is, you know, queer and partnered and in a loving relationship. But this is someone who, um, entrusted me with that information at that time. And so I had this special relationship with them. They opened my world up to arts and there was sort of like, so there's a kind of a natural intersection right there of, of what is just and, and the arts. And, because I've always been preoccupied with justice and with equity. It was very natural for me when I started painting um, more prolifically that that's what always showed up in my paintings because Mm -hmm. I was working through a lot of my thoughts on those things. And so a lot of my art is reflective of the conversations I'm having every day in the movement spaces that I'm occupying. So it's just a, a natural pairing of those two. And art lets you have conversations that you wouldn't have had otherwise. It's the same thing I say about food. It's why I think food of, of food as medicine and the dining table is sacred. So is art. It allows conversations and vulnerability that probably wouldn't have happened otherwise. Mm, yeah. So it's, it's a way to make an offering that can then be a prompt for conversation yes. and, and yeah. for going to a place of depth for, for the audience. Mm-hmm. What about for the work, the creator, the artist and how yeah. does oh, it's therapy? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I have actually, I also go to therapy. God bless my therapist. Um, right. But long before I could afford therapy, like this was probably my one regular outlet to just work through stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and things that I was having a really hard time with. I mentioned, you know, anxiety. I live with anxiety, depression, CPTSD. I have a lot of stuff I'm working through. And art is a space where I can just let go. And so sometimes it's an intentional painting and sometimes it's intuitive. And I'm just throwing everything on the canvas and trying to get it out of me. Mm. Um, so it's therapeutic for me personally. And then hopefully it's engaging enough for the audience that they want to have conversations about the subject matter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, I relate to that as a creative writer and how oftentimes when I show up to write something, I feel like what I'm tr- really trying to do is work something through and work something out on the page. And I've heard from one of my editors that that's the best work that I create is when it's like obvious that from beginning to end, I've worked through my question mm. and which, which I find so uh, fascinating because it's very different than like what I was taught to do in college, which it's yeah. like, this is my point. And now I'm going to prove it. Right. Right. Yep. The, the-, <laughs> the thesis statement. And then you're <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. But instead, like it's engaging the reader, it's engaging for, you know, in painting it's in, in other mediums, like it's engaging the audience. If they can see that like, Oh, we're on a journey here with the artists, we're going somewhere in this and we're arriving somewhere to get with them. And now we're yeah. starting to think and feel a bit of what they were thinking and feeling. Yeah. And yet we can't even like, there's still so much mystery in it. Right. And it's yeah. just, but it provokes this like a, a place of comp- contemplation for, for the audience, for the reader, Absolutely. for the, for the viewer of the art. Yeah. Or, or the listener, if it's music. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I mean, I wish art was, had a more 
And it's, it is present in a lot of justice spaces, but I wish it had an even more strong presence because I mean, and you saw a little bit of this, we did this in our time together, but I try and incorporate drawing, uh, creation, anything into, into the work I do with people, particularly with adults, because we're so rigid and we're so concerned with appearing like put together and professional and in the know and (laughs) anything that makes us uncomfortable or embarrasses us or asks us to exercise muscles we haven't in a long time, like creative muscles, we can get very like, oh no. But then as soon as I throw people into it, they're so creative and they have so much to share with one another. And again, conversations get started that we probably wouldn't have had otherwise. Mm -hmm. So I think the arts should be not just, you know, professional artists creating things for the movement, but all people in movement spaces should be engaging some form of art and creativity. It's healing. Yeah. You know, and we're God is creator and we are made in God's image and yes. likeness. So like part of being a disciple is to be creative, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I don't know. That's what I think all the time. And all these folks who are like, oh, I'm not creative. I don't have a creative bone in my body. I'm like, um, aren't you made in God's image and likeness? Yeah. Don't right. you? You might, you might not have a, a skilled, like, right. <laughs> like you might, you may not have a professional skill level, but we're all creative beings. Yeah. We can all make something. Exactly. Yeah. So enter into it as messy as may be, you'll get yeah. somewhere. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you've talked a little bit about your faith journey and I'd love to hear a bit more about mm-hmm. how your faith in Jesus influences your work and your worldview. Sure. Because a lot of the work that I do is around not just anti-racism, but also decolonization, this process as an Indo-Latinx woman, a Latina woman of indigenous heritage, decolonizing and and rediscovering who I am outside of a a white gaze is a really important part of of my my process, my growth as an individual. It's also one of the reasons that when I have those conversations in a lot of spaces, particularly spaces that are populated with a lot of folks of color, I'll get the response of like, well, then why in the world are you Christian? Why? (laughs) Like, how how are you decolonizing and you're a Christian? And I get the question because like, let's be honest, we, the church have done some really awful things persistently for many, many generations. Mm -hmm. Um, We've also done wonderful things, but we have done some awful things Mm -hmm. um, that we have yet to to fully atone for, um, let alone address. But the delving into scripture and through a, with a decolonized lens and asking myself, like, what is like recognizing that these are stories of people of color. These are stories of folks on the margin. These are stories. This was not a dominant religion when these stories were being told. These are like people who understand so much of who I am probably more readily than the, than the average like modern churchgoer does. Them I relate to, their stories I relate to. There's a lot of healing and goodness to be found in those stories and perseverance to be found in those stories. And so that has been a really important part of my I guess, new season of Christianity, or I don't know why this is the word that's coming to mind, but kind of like a new Christian puberty. (laughs) Like like I was a child and I had this one understanding of it and now I'm maturing and I'm getting a very more robust understanding of my faith and how I want to present it to the world and who I, how I want to move through the world and decolonizing has been a big part of that process. Mm. And what does decolonizing mean for those? Yeah. That's a real buzzword right now. (laughs) 
so it's been really diminished lately where people kind of say decolonize and they're like, oh, it's just this sort of like internal personal process where like you just stop caring what, you know, dominant culture thinks or what whiteness thinks or whatever it might be. That's a part of it. But decolonization is a it's a political stance and movement and, and there are demands and expectations that are involved. And so it has to do with land, with property, with resources, with having uh, sovereignty to decide for ourselves who we are and how how we move through the world, it's access, it's acknowledgement of past atrocities and, and genocidal acts. It's all of this is a part of the decolonization process, not just learning to burn a sage bundle and, <laughs> and, and, you know, adopting a new name or something. And I don't mean to belittle those things, but decolonization is a, it's a hard road and it requires a lot of intentionality. Mm, and community because it, it's big it, oh, so much it is not a thing done yeah and I think it's, it, making it an inherently individualistic thing is so funny to me when you're approaching decolonization because it's so inherent that's so inherently the wrong approach because right. an indigenous approach to these things would center community and not individual and so taking it and making it about just who I am would be wrong right 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 yeah, yeah. you can't really decolonize yourself without being. <laughs> yeah, with you need a community and you need accountability. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Oh my goodness. There's so much we could explore together. And I just thank you so much for sharing <laughs> your time. You know, I want to go back to the word radical a little bit, but this time mm-hmm. I want to add on the word discipleship and ask mm-hmm. what's radical discipleship for you. Mm-hmm. So this is making me think of a story. I attended a church for several years. And while I was there, I co-led a racial justice group. Um, And I led it in my home two Sundays a week. I would invite about 15 to 20 folks in. We would have conversations about racial justice at my dining table where I had prepared a meal because as I said, that is a sacred space and really good conversations can happen. We were met with constant resistance from from the church itself, despite being a church that that celebrated its identity as multicultural and and racial justice oriented because it was really a preoccupation with uh, reconciliation without justice. All of that to be said, every time I was kind of sat down by leadership and it was like, where are you going with this? Why are you having these conversations? This feels divisive. Uh, One of the things that I was constantly told when I pushed back and said, but you said we are for racial justice. You said we are for this, this, and this. And now I'm asking us to live into it. And that is why we're meeting twice a month. And the response I would get is our main priority is discipleship. And so I would say, well, what does that mean? Because to me, if we're discipling people and we're not showing them what it is to love like Jesus and to prioritize things like justice, then how are we discipling people? What is it we're, we're teaching them? How are you raising people up in, in a good way and in a just way and in a holy way? And all, every time the response was just, it's just, it's discipleship. We want them to know the word. Um, and this other thing is a secondary priority. And I kept trying to say, no, this other thing is a part of discipleship. It is how you do it right and well. And we just were in, we were in conflict about that. We saw, they saw them as two separate things. I saw it as a crucial component that could not be taken out. That's discipleship. Discipleship is, it's building up justice. Yes. It's it. Well, it's discipleship is it's helping people know how to, to, how to engage the word. It is helping people know how to engage one another. It is helping people integrate the priorities that we see reflected in Jesus and in scripture. And some of those priorities are absolutely about justice, wellness, and wholeness. Mm. And so acting as if that isn't a crucial part of discipleship makes no sense to me. 
Yeah. Your story reminds me of like some years ago when I was working with a youth ministry uh, organization and there was a teenager there who kind of had this aha moment where she said, she just kind of shared, I always thought that religion was a Sunday thing. And now mm. I'm starting to get that if I really believe in this, it's got, got to influence every part of who I am yes. and, and how I live my life all the time. And I was yes. like, welcome. <laughs> Thank exactly. you for my, not compartmentalizing this anymore yeah. because that's holistic, right? That's yes. healthy. That's authentic. If you're showing up as a person who loves Jesus and is dedicated to his teachings and at all spaces and all times, then you're truly following him. Yeah. And I want to acknowledge like, and not diminish or not just disregard the fact that that makes people very uncomfortable or very nervous because I have, I've experienced firsthand and I've seen in the lives of others that I know and care for that when you do that, when you try and take the, this sort of posture where you see discipleship and you see, um, the, your faith as something that is supposed to permeate all parts of who you are and all spaces that you occupy, you can experience a great deal of loss. I know folks who have lost their, their job. I've been a person who's lost my job. As I mentioned, I know folks who have lost their pastoral positions, have lost their congregations, have lost family members, uh, because they decided to live more fully into these things. Mm -hmm. So there's very real risk. And I acknowledge that it doesn't make it not necessary and not important, but there is very real risk, which is why we need to walk alongside another, one another in this process and not make it an individualistic thing because that loss, that potential for loss is much more frightening when you have absolutely nobody there to hold you up. Yeah. Yeah. So we have to really, again, back to the community, right? Mm -hmm. We just really have to be community to one another. And when, so like, Thinking about that teenager that I knew years ago when she was having that aha moment, I could have responded to her instead of saying like, welcome, like, oh, what do you need? Mm. Like, how can I support you yeah, in that, this yes. new, new space of like being with your faith? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been better. <laughs> I admit <laughs> it would have, it would have been a next step. Absolutely. It would have right. been a, a good okay. next step. Yeah. Okay. Well, one last question. Sure. How is it messy for you to do all this work, to advocate for change and to build up the world Christ commissioned us to build? Sure. I feel like an outsider a lot of the time is I think if there, if I had to name what is probably one of my biggest struggles doing this is a lot of times I feel like an outsider. And I feel like I enter a lot of spaces where at least a few faces in the room are unhappy that I'm there. And that's not a good feeling. Nobody wants to feel like that. And I, I get that pretty regularly. A lot of times when I'm invited into communities, it's because they've hit um, one of those thresholds that I was talking about earlier, where it's like things have gotten so bad that now we cannot avoid a conversation. Things have gotten so tense that now we realize we need help. And that's often when I enter a community. And so there are at least a few who are antagonistic and don't want my presence. And that hurts. And feeling like you're never quite completely welcome in spaces is a painful feeling. It's one I've accepted that it's a reality of, of doing this work, but it doesn't make it less harmful. Mm. Yeah. So the messiness is the fact that not everyone's included. Not everyone yeah. feels like they're, they belong yet, including yeah. you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's sort of that feeling of like not being completely at home, even in the spaces that are supposed to be home to you. So like, mm -hmm. I haven't had a consistent church that I attend since I left that last church. And that's, that was, I walked out of my last service in that congregation in 2017, I believe it was. Mm. Now I've been a part of many 
you know, faith spaces and have had wonderful conversations and still practice my faith. And it's still an important part of my life. And I have those I'm in community and relationship, like one-on-one and friendships who, who share my faith. But in terms of having a church that I regularly attend, um, it's been really hard. And often it's because I enter it. I'm so hopeful for who they, who they say they are. And then I see those, those doors come slamming shut and I see where the line is drawn and I see who really isn't, isn't welcome and no, no space is perfect. I don't have an expectation of of perfection, but I've been in faith is spaces that are Christian that are so welcoming are radical in their welcome. So I know what the difference looks like. It's very hard to go back to the other. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. So what else do we do? Folks need to hear about how to do this and how to yeah. build up spaces that are more inclusive and restorative. Oh my gosh. Uh, there are probably so many things. I don't know why, but the thing that's coming to my mind right now is wanting to challenge people to be uncomfortable and to take, take some risk and to have conversations. Even if the conversation feels wrong to you, just kind of dip your toe in and be like, well, why does this feel wrong? What have I been taught that makes this feel like it's not okay when it might actually be really life-giving. But the other on the other hand, give yourself some grace. I meet a lot of folks who are like, I feel I'm so guilty because of this conversation. And that's part of why folks don't like me in a space. They're like, I'm feeling so much shame right now. I'm feeling so much guilt right now. Um, and the best I can do is just respond and say like, shame is serving no one. It doesn't serve you. It doesn't serve God. And it certainly doesn't serve the people that are being harmed. So there's no need for shame, accountability and honesty about like where we've made mistakes, where we've gone wrong. Cause I've done messed up things in my past. I, I didn't know what I didn't know, you know, to, you know, to paraphrase my Angelou, but now that I do, I do better. And so that's all you can expect for yourself. Figure out what you don't know and try to do better, mm. but shame doesn't have to play a role in that. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Sure. So where can our listeners follow your work and um, reach out to you for, for support in the movements that they're involved in? Um, so the easiest way is through my website, browneyedamazon.com. And then on social media, I have the same handle across most platforms and I'm on all, all the platforms, I think, except Snapchat. I'm too old. I can't figure it out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but all the other ones, um, I'm going to spell it for folks, but it's, you know, the little at asterisk and then B-R-W-N-E-Y-E-D-A-M-Z-N. So Brown Eyed Amazon with some of the letters taken out, but you can find me on all the platforms. And I, I love talking with folks and engaging folks. And you mentioned that I have resources out there. Like I want to have these conversations. I want them to be as accessible as possible. So yeah, I welcome it. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Me. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanksgiving Day in the United States, 2021, for our contemplative moment, I'd like to read a prayer from the writers at G's Magazine. This prayer is written by Lydia Wiley Kellerman and Kateri Boucher. It's called A Prayer for the Reckoning. I invite you to join me in this contemplative moment. Oh God, whose spirit rests in the contours of indigenous lands, 
whose breath rises in the street, chanting Black Lives Matter, whose rage boils when the cross is raised as weapon, whose being is reimagined by the honeybees, mycelium, and the snow-covered cedars. We stand at a time when the powers of death are grasping for air. We are witnessing the ways that Christianity's tentacles have bound themselves to patriarchy, nationalism, and white supremacy. For many of us rooted in this tradition, this is a moment of reckoning with its violence. We watch in terror, but not shock, grief, but not despair, trembling with the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? We ask you to hold us in this tension, help us ground in our bodies, and remember our histories and yearnings. Send us Shipra and Pua to summon our courage of disobedience and resistance to empire's demands. Send us Miriam to remind us to sing and dance and trust the waters as the walls come crumbling down. Send us Mary and Magdalene to help us tend to bodies and the places of death despite the risks and fears. May the red, white, and blue beyond our altars come down and the blue-eyed, blonde-haired Jesuses be removed. May we find church instead in the small and prophetic, entwined with justice, community, and liberation. May guns be beaten into garden tools. May history be studied and ancestors be summoned. May we pray for the nonviolent collapse of the U.S. empire. And may the remnants of these prayers be on our hands and woven into our lives in the days to come. Amen. That's it for this episode of Messy Jesus Business. Thanks for listening. Messy Jesus Business is produced and hosted by me, Sister Julia Walsh, and edited by Cherish Bedzinski. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.